0: What happens when you take a redneck fishing guide and pair him up with a master beekeeper? Well, we're about to find out. Join our host, Ken Milam and John Swan, as they help you brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. This is The Hive (laughs) Jive. Can you hear me now?
1: I can. Can you hear me? Oh, I got you. Yep. I got you. And I should sound way better than I did last week. Oh, you do much. (laughs) Yeah. You know why? (laughs) Why? So apparently, um, and I didn't figure this out until the editing process, which at that time we had already done the main segment and the bonus episode. So everybody had to suffer Mm -hmm. through the sound qualities of of both. But Mm -hmm. when I hooked everything up and then I logged into Podbean, um, I tested the mic and I noticed that it was it was really low on the the register meter, and that's why you know I asked you. I was like, "Oh, can you hear me very well?" Mm-hmm. And you were like, "Oh, I mean, you're kind of quiet, you know." And so I was messing with the gain and everything on the soundboard. It was because the mic was mm-hmm. not registering this mic, the actual professional mic, for whatever reason. Oh, it was picking up the mic on mm-hmm. the computer.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh. Okay. Okay. And I was not. I was not facing the computer. I was facing like. Mm-hmm off to the side of the computer. So it was picking up the background noise of the aquarium. It was picking up all the, the sounds of the house in the background. And then, of course, I sounded far away and like I was in a tin can. And uh, yeah. yeah, so that was the last two episodes. Greatly apologize, everybody. <laughs> it's a learning
0: experience.
1: Yes, it is. No, oh, by the way, um, uh, welcome to July
0: and, uh, yeah, this is the 5th of July, the well, 5th of July, 5th, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. And, uh, so happy belated fourth. Yeah. Uh, for everybody. Happy Independence Day, everybody. Yeah. Happy birthday, America. And so, yeah. Hope nobody, uh, got, uh, too hot or got stuff burnt up or. All that good stuff. So, Didn't yeah. set yourself on fire with
1: a Roman candle or, you know, have some sort of drunken debauchery that uh, ended
0: in bodily harm. Yeah. I wonder what bees do when it starts all the fireworks. They think it's thunder and they just get a little tighter uh, batten down in the hatches. I'm not sure, <laughs> I'm actually. Not. Um, I don't know. Hmm. I ain't never. I, I just was... Last night I was... Uh, uh, looking at all the animals and you know during the fireworks i'm sitting there dogs are hid chickens uh they are just tight little ball and hang on the coot on the the roost and uh the cats have disappeared i'm sitting there wondering what the bees do so i didn't go open them up of course but uh i just well, eh, something to think about <laughs> Well you well, know I don't think about during the day
1: the the fireworks that go off during the day probably do cause some disruption and some, some other issues because percussion can oh, alter yeah. what they're doing. You know, that's like the whole the tining or tanging when you bang on a pot or a pan or another piece of wood whenever there's a swarm and you get mm-hmm. it to alter its course and come down there towards you. So yeah, that definitely probably would. Now at nighttime. Once they're inside the colony, it may make them more alert. Um, they yep. may have more guards at the entrance and and be more hyper vigilant. But otherwise, I don't think the the nighttime ones probably <laughs> you know do as much effect. But the daytime ones, not. while they're
0: out flying and doing stuff, that probably has some issues. Now, if any of our family is listening, they, well, I need to go check. Okay, if you do use a red filter on your flashlight, and it doesn't affect them near as much as a white light we found that out by doing some uh messing with bees at night um it was, wear a veil it didn't me at all. <laughs> huh i said wear a veil too oh yeah yeah be sure just, but, in, yeah. just in case <laughs> uh, we wear a full suit but yeah hmm.
1: Hmm. we have a listener question okay. that literally just came in hmm. should we put the listener question on the air and if oh, so, well. where does it go in the middle of all that? Uh, bonus. Well, I don't know if they're a patron, so then oh, they okay. wouldn't be able to hear it. Oh, okay. speaking of, okay, so. All right. So other things <laughs> now here. You're doing it. The, now, it, well, it's your fault. You started this, dang it. <laughs> um, okay. And that's probably not going to make sense to anybody. But back at the beginning of the show here, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's, we're all beginning, over the place. Yeah. Front. Yeah, yeah okay. at the front. Um. So, in addition to the recording studio no longer being there, there was a couple of things that I have said a couple of times, and every time I've said it, I'm like, oh, I should probably mention that on the main segment episode so that everybody else can hear it. Now that I say it, my brain went blank, and I don't remember what they are. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> uh. <laughs> oh, shit. Speaking oh, of, no. you said You said, you said on the the bonus episode, and I didn't
0: find it and bleep it out. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I called the yeah, I called the bees there. I'm sorry, <laughs>
1: man, I was certain because I even at the beginning when I started editing it, I was like, I know he said the B word in here. and I gotta find that and bleep <laughs> that out. and i I
0: jumped ahead and just finished it, and oops, um, okay. Well you. Uh, we, what uh, when you say uh, say it in uh, on our bonus episode? Say that. So what do you call our bees? beat the B word for? Because they just stung me. And I just walked out and they've been stinging me and blah blah blah. So yeah, and I yeah. So whatever, whatever you want to do. Yeah. Well, that's fine. It it was just more of a. I usually bleep those out.
1: I usually make yeah. a mental note, and I had it in there, but apparently I just I jumped forward and and skipped over it. So. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so what what was it that I said we needed to say on the main segment episode so that everybody could hear? Oh, mm. well, we got a got a question, we got a
0: listener question. We got yeah, we got the listener,
1: that. we got the listener question. But there was a couple of things. Okay, so one of them, and these are these are things that got mentioned on on Patreon bonus episodes, and then I decided that it mm-hmm. was probably good for everybody to hear. Um, mm-hmm. One of them was a story in regards to putting up a swarm trap in a place where you did not have permission to put it.
2: Oh, yeah. And the,
1: yeah, uh, yeah, so the whole, like, the story in a nutshell is there's a community garden that's not that far from my house, and somebody put up a swarm trap in one of the trees Mm -hmm. out there in the community garden. Mm -hmm. They're not a member of the community garden, and apparently they don't live in this community. And... Everybody, you know, it was the talk of the neighborhood for quite a while, trying to figure out what was, uh, who had done it and what was going on. And people had a lot of questions. And so I spent the first half of of that whole process, you know, explaining things to people and, you know, putting them at ease and and what was going on. And it stayed up there for a couple of months. And then all of a sudden, bees finally moved in. Mm. And then it still was there like a month later. And mm. nobody had ever come out to do anything. The board for the community garden started getting very antsy and a lot of the neighbors started getting antsy. The person that usually mowed the property would not go mow because there's now an active colony of bees, you know, 10 foot in the air above where he's got to mow Mm -hmm. around. And, Mm -hmm. you know, people are always out there where their kids play in and, and riding their bikes and walking their dogs and all that stuff. And so everybody was then up in arms when the bees finally showed up and the individual that put this up there never came and got it. So eventually they contacted the city and the city ended up saying, well, you know, that's, that's city property and nobody had permission to do that. And so then they had to find somebody to come and take it down. Luckily in this instance, I was the easy contact because they already knew that I did bees and I'm right here in the neighborhood, but -hmm. it could have ended up being somebody like Walter or somebody else. So the word of caution to everybody was that if you're going to put up swarm traps, Always get permission. Don't try to be sneaky and don't stick it out somewhere and just, you know, think that you're being sly because one, you could put people in danger. Two, you could wind up losing your equipment. And three, in this case, you lost the bees too. Um, So just be sure to go through and actually make sure that you have permission and check and the other part of that is if you do put up a swarm trap somewhere, be responsible and go back weekly and check it, especially if it's in a public place. Don't just leave it for four months and never go look at it. So mm-hmm. that was one of the things. What was the other well, one? I
0: check my bee traps on a regular basis because it tickles me to death when I catch a bunch. Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I oh, the one other one
0: gone out of a trap. Okay.
1: The other one is uh, it was a terminology thing and it had to do with the term feral. And I was doing a Mm -hmm. seminar and one of the questions was about the negative connotation of the word feral and how they associated the word feral with mean or aggressive or highly defensive. And they were trying to find, yeah, it's just wild and so they they wanted to know like well what else can i use Mm -hmm. because that seems to have a negative tone to it and the answer to that is so when you hear ken or i either one say a feral colony what that means to us is an unmanaged colony it is a colony that is living Mm -hmm. in the wild or quote unquote a wild colony that has not been manipulated or managed by a beekeeper that is a feral Mm -hmm. colony and so it doesn't denote aggression That feral colony could be the sweetest bees you've ever met in your life. It just means that they are an unmanaged, unknown lineage of bees. That's all. Um, So those were the two little things that I wanted to pull over there.
0: If it's the sweetest bees you ever met in your life, put them in a Langstra for a top bar and raise Queens because it's a feral colony that has learned how to live in the wild and they know how to take care of the mites. So we had a listener question that literally
1: came in right when we started recording. And this one is from David and David says, uh, it's David H and he goes, Hey, so my best hives are my third year hives. They're also my Mm -hmm. meanest hives. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They start stinging my truck. As soon as I pull into the lot, Mm -hmm. I've got five honey supers on each. And I think as long as they are kicking behind, I don't think, I I think that it would be dumb to requeen them at this point. Well, yes. Um, For the times that I put on my suit correctly, I do not get stung. When I do get stung, it's because I didn't put my suit on correctly. Or like this morning when I thought the coast was clear and I was clearly wrong. I've got (laughs) good (laughs) gloves. (laughs) I've, I've got good gloved, but always get stung through the leather. Any thoughts? Thank you, David. Okay, so, yeah, this kind of comes back to the whole thing of how much can you tolerate and where are they at? If they're in town, that's absolutely not acceptable. I would say requeen them as soon as possible because you don't want to put other people in jeopardy. If they're out in the country and they're away from anybody who's going to just aimlessly wander into the area and you can tolerate them so long as your suit is put on correctly, and they're making you a lot of honey, you don't necessarily have to requeen them, but it's completely personal preference. As far as the gloves, try switching over to the nitrile gloves just to Mm -hmm. see, because your leather gloves, number one, leather is skin, and skin is what they are tuned to go towards, to sting. Number two, the leather retains the pheromones. So, even when you go through and you wash them and you do other stuff to them, they're still going to have trace amounts of that pheromone in there. So they're going to carry along the smells, which are going to encourage the bees to come back to those gloves even more quickly the next time around. So if you try to do the nitrile gloves, they don't smell like anything. And if the bees land on them, they don't immediately sting unless you squish them or do something else. Now, if you really, really provoke them, yes, they absolutely can sting you through those just like they can sting you through the leather gloves. So, um, but it's just something to try now at this point in time in the year where you've got five boxes on there, I would say don't even try to go through and, and find those Queens. Cause there's so many boxes to go through and so much mm-hmm. going on. Plus you're going to interrupt the, the process and the, the evenly toned machine that is this honey producing monster. And you could throw that all out of whack. So wait until after, if you do, again, assuming they're out in the country and you do want to requeen them, wait until after the flow when you've pulled all the boxes and harvested the honey and you've got the bees down into just a couple of boxes so you have less to go through, then you can go through and requeen them. The trick is going to be finding queens in the fall. It's great to requeen in the fall because then you're going to overwinter with a fresh new queen And you can start the new year off, you know, hitting the ground running, but it can be trickier to get those queens or find those queens. And it's even trickier to sometimes to raise them because the best time to raise a good, solid, healthy queen is in the spring when the nectar flow is really up and going. So um, I don't know if that actually answers your question or not, David, but thank you for sending it in and uh, good luck,
0: dude. (laughs) And if you could find a local beekeeper that raises queens, and get Queens off of him with the, that is a good, better mannered queen. Apparently I got a, what I think John is if he's had three years, how many times has those be swarmed? I don't know about the management of it. You know, I could speculate that
1: at least once a year, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, so, so, so the only way you ever truly, honestly, 100% know is if she's marked. And you can still Mm -hmm. find her. That's Mm -hmm. the only time you can definitively say this colony has never swarmed. Because, again, it happens in 16 days. It is so quick. And they will start tearing down those queen cells very quickly afterwards. And you'll just end up having the cups left over, which may have always been there anyway. So, you don't notice anything. So, if you're checking them every three weeks, you literally could start the process and end the process before you actually realized it was happening but the colony carries mm-hmm. on. So it could be that now that they're in their third year, they have requeen themselves at least once or twice. And that's why if they're mating with other bees that have the scutellata genetics in them or just mm-hmm. more of a Texas redheaded mutt genetics, then mm-hmm. that defensive level has gone up each time. But I have, I've told the story before, though, where we had a uh, consultation client who had a colony that for the first two years, they were awesome. And then all of a sudden in the third year, they they just went evil. And we were certain that that's what had happened. They had requeened themselves. And I went through that colony and I found the yellow marked queen who was clipped and could not fly and was the only queen in that colony. And she was still the one laying the eggs. And for whatever reason, just over the course of time, she had cycled through all of her good genetics. And the only thing left was, you know, Satan. (laughs) So, (laughs) yep, yeah, that that could go either way. So, one thing that uh, that I've been meaning to tell you before we get too far into all this other stuff is mm-hmm. the, um, <laughs> I don't remember what we used to call it, the recording studio where we went after we left the radio station before COVID oh, yeah. got like really, really bad and yeah, uh, yeah. the contact high studio. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's gone.
0: Gone. It,
1: yeah. Oh, I drove by the there. The property was... Well, so that I drove by there the other day and they've gutted it. It's just the the framework and the roof and the whole front third or two thirds of the building's gone. Good gosh. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know if the recording studio, if the soundstage moved to one of the other buildings out there or if it's, I did notice a sign on the opposite side of the street that there was a some sort of recording studio over there, but it wasn't. I don't think it was the same thing, the same name, but yeah. So if, and when we do get back around to doing an in-person show between the Mm -hmm. two of us being in the same place at the same time, we will have to go Mm -hmm. back on the hunt for another location because that one's at the very least under some serious renovation, like ground up work, but I think it's gone. I think that maybe they,
0: they folded sometime during the end of the pandemic. As expensive as that piece of property is in Austin, Texas, I could see that. Yeah. Because that land in Austin is getting crazy on price. Well, land everywhere is getting crazy on price, but yeah.
1: Yeah. But I don't think that they're going to, because that whole, that's a warehouse district. Yeah. And they've converted each of those warehouses into either rental spaces or um, some of them are commercial kitchens. Some of them are bars or breweries uh you know there's all kinds of things in there some are art studios i think it'll still be used for Mm -hmm. for something along those lines i just don't think that the i think when they get done with whatever rehab they're doing like literally like ground up um rebuilding Mm -hmm. i I don't think that the sound studio will be there i think it'll be something different so anyhow so you know you've got the this this nectar flow that's Hopefully, fingers crossed, still going to do stuff. And you've got your mesquite that's blooming or going to bloom again. And we've got more rain forecast. So they are saying that July and August, and we've mentioned this on the show before, but July and August for us in Central Texas is going to be cooler than average. Now, that could literally just mean two or three degrees cooler. Um, But I'm still totally okay with, you know, 95 versus 100 plus heat index. So... The other parts of the country, though, you know, they're having like these historic heat waves where they're getting the temperature that we normally have every year. And it's going to shift everybody's flow and what's going on. But the the thing for us, and I've got a couple of listeners um, that have sent in messages and questions and things along these lines, but about this time of the year. The colonies have a natural ebb and flow to what they're doing. And so you're giving them extra boxes and extra comb, which is good because you've got that available. But for anybody that doesn't, and you're at your maximum, you've put everything that you own out there, they are eventually, probably already, all of my colonies already had done this, but they're going to backfill the brood nest. Mm -hmm. And they're going to start filling all the open cells with nectar, which means that the queen is no longer gonna have anywhere to lay. Now, that puts some people in a panic, but there's so many factors that need to be taken into consideration when it comes to that specific scenario. If that happened in April or May, or even maybe the very first week of June, that would be bigger, cur- bigger concern and cause for alarm than happening in July or August. And the reason for that, for us specifically, again, here in Central Texas, we have a summer dearth Mm -hmm. and the queen, even if there was no nectar in the colony and every cell was open and she was able to lay anywhere she wanted to, she's going to stop laying anyway, because the summer dearth, there's no food available out there for them. It's way too hot. There's no nectar. There's no flowers and therefore there's no food. So why would we continue raising more babies that have to be fed? So she's going to cut back her laying. And I did have a couple of people that you could tell that their their mindset was the queen has to lay every day. She lays 1,500 to 2,000 eggs a day. What's going to happen if there's there's nowhere for her to lay? Well, if that happens in earlier in the year, if it happens in April or May or, or like I said, maybe that first week of June, That's when it triggers the swarming urge and the colony is like, we got a ton of bees. We got a ton of food. There's nowhere else for the queen to lay. So now she can go lay in the queen cups. We're going to fill those with royal jelly, turn them into queens and we're going to swarm and we're going to divide. And then when they do that, they take some of those resources that are occupying the cells with them. And that kind of frees up some space and, you know, like the whole cycle kind of starts over. But if it happens now, if it happens in July, is it really that big of a concern? And there's no right I, or wrong answer to this.
0: I just thought of something. Do you know why it got so hot and up in in Oregon and Washington State? <laughs> just thought of this. This is a classic kid. I gave you a perfect segue, man. You're going way off the mouth. I, <laughs> I know, I know, but do you know why it got so hot up there? Why? The good Lord doesn't like murder hornets. They don't like the heat. You know, that is actually, that's interesting. I don't, I mean, it'll be
1: interesting to see what happens to them because they are a more temperate, cooler climate kind of critter uh, or well, more, more seasonal. They're still in a seasonal place, but yeah, I I wonder how they'll survive the, the excess heat. (laughs) That could prove to be bad for us though, because if they, if they do well with that, then they'll be oh, yeah. like, oh, hell, we can migrate further south. Um, yep. Anyhow, turd. Circle that back around. Into? <laughs> so,
0: well, it's is something it, for people to
1: think about. It was something to think about. It really was. It was just uh, uh, poorly timed where you decided to I place know. that. That's just the way I am. I was like, I had it all queued up. We were on a roll. And you like I thought you were going to take it and run, and you ran right off to murder hornets. Yeah,
2: um, well, I have giant, a brain
0: fart. giant Asian <laughs> hornets. Giant Asian hornets. Yeah, giant Asian hornets. Yes, that's right. It. Not so, murder hornets. Right, not the
1: M word. Um, okay, so again, back to what we were originally talking about: the backfilling of the cells in mm-hmm. July or beyond. Mm-hmm. Is it bad or is it good? Is it natural or is it a problem? Your thoughts. And again, no right I or wrong answer. Probably
0: as natural as it can be because uh, bees, if they, you know, they're going to use that come winter wintertime. Uh, now, or as it gets into dearth, uh, our summer dearth, they're going to use that honey up. And the queen will lay a small batch of eggs in the dearth. And if they have food, it may be a little bit bigger batch of eggs. And so, uh, yeah, you know, if bees just do what bees do. And they got to do what they got to do. And, yeah. Oh, by the way, one of the abscons, I got them back. Oh, uh, dude. They moved into another <laughs> stay, top bar.
1: Stay on top.
0: They moved into a top bar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I okay.
1: So, you're killing me, Smalls. Um, all right. So the, the, the other half of that, like you said, the bees are going to do what the bees are going to do. And in nature, there isn't anybody there to come and add another box when they're full, they're full. Mm-hmm. And so the, the cycle that the colony goes through and they may go through this cycle multiple times throughout the year, but for us, they go through it twice, sort of, uh, as far as the mm-hmm. filling aspect of it. But at the very beginning of the year, When they're coming out of their winter hibernation, quote unquote hibernation, they are starting to bring in enough food so that they can ramp up their population. Once the population and the food really get to go in and really ramp up, they go into an expansion of the colony itself and the actual structure, the comb work. So they start the building phase. The expansion of the population and the building phase run neck and neck, but at a certain point in the year, there starts to be a tip of the scales to where they're bringing in so much food that the the they have to start putting it somewhere so it starts kind of backfilling from the top down and they're going to start on the outer frames or the outer comb and they'll start at the top of the comb and if you're doing a langstroth setup it's usually going to be they'll start in the top box and they'll backfill downward which forces everybody back into your original brood box if it's in a horizontal hive they'll start at one end or the other and they'll start backfilling and compress everything down into the opposite side. And that'll be your brood nest area. When that occurs, they're bringing in all this food. The whole important part of this is that they are preparing for either the summer dearth for us and also future winter dearth or the winter dearth. And when the seasons tip and you hit that summer solstice, So in the spring, you have the spring equinox and your days and your nights are even times. And then as you progress from the spring equinox over to the summer solstice, the days continue to get longer and longer and longer until they ultimately hit a peak. And at that solstice, the day is the longest it's going to be out of the year. And then it's going to start to decrease from that point forward. That is the B's signal the temperatures change, the weather changes, but the sun and the amount of time in the sky, when that starts decreasing, they know they've got to store up for winter. Mm -hmm. So even though the queen can lay 2,000 eggs a day, does not mean that she is supposed to lay 2,000 eggs every day, 365 days a year. There's a phase and a pattern and a role to how that works. And as the ebb and flow goes through, the seasons do it, the, the colony does it to actually stay in line with stuff. So they've backfilled down, It compresses them down into that lower box. That backfilling gives them all the food that they need. And then if you're in an area like Central Texas where you go through the summer dearth, when there's no other food available, they're going to start consuming the nectar that's in the brood nest. And the brood nest will start opening back up. So that then at the end of the summer dearth, when fall comes back around, now, even though there wasn't a couple of months before, now there's open cells and open comb for them to start raising the winter bees because they cleared out those cells during the dearth when there was no other food available. But they've still got all that food up above them that they backfilled that's now capped and that's their emergency reserves. And if they need to, they can go into that. If they don't, then that's their food stores for the winter. Or if you're in a place like us where there's a fall flow that happens after the summer dearth, if they burn all the way through all their food, that's fine. They will still turn around and they can bring in more during the fall flow. But Mm -hmm. in nature, nobody can come out there and add another box. So if they're in that tree column and they've filled up, man, your birds are just having a heyday back there. There They are. (laughs) (laughs) If you, if you have a tree and they filled up that entire tree column with comb and they started at the top and they backfilled all the way down to the bottom, Mm -hmm. nobody can come along and open up that tree and stick more comb in there for them. So Mm -hmm. what you're seeing in your colony is exactly what happens in nature. And that's, that's part of the ebb and flow of the beekeeping so don't panic especially late in the year or or late into the summer if you notice that they've done that now if you do because this is the luxury of being a beekeeper and having the extra stuff and it not being a tree (laughs) but you can continue to manipulate it and you can continue to try to get them to keep going but do keep in mind if you are coming up on a summer dearth don't try to encourage them to raise a ton more bees right now because Here in a few weeks, there may not be any food for them at all. And they've got to feed all those bees. So nature forcing them in our area to not be able to raise as many bees is actually good for them because they're getting ready to come up on a time when there's not enough food to support all of them. So it's kind of a nice balance, but it it goes into that whole, the natural approach to things and and when you should or should not intervene and what your ultimate goals
0: are for that scenario. But. It's a catch 22 also, because if you don't have enough bees, if you got a box that's full, I mean, full of capped honey, the brood box is full, the medium of top of it's full, and you only have four or 500 bees, which we have already gone through this on one of my hives, and you fixed it on both hives, two hives. We pulled two frames out of each or four frames out of each? We pulled four frames out of each but that was that was way earlier in in the year though yeah oh yeah 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 yeah
1: yeah see that was that was like you know that was something that we did in like april may and they still had plenty of time to raise those bees before you know mid-july hit but now we're in july that i wouldn't necessarily look at it from that perspective but yes if you do have a colony that is very small and it needs the the extra bees because it's not going to survive otherwise. Then that is something that you definitely would have to take into consideration. And if you have the available drawn comb, you can go through and yep. implement that. If you don't have the nope. available drawn comb, you're exactly where you would be in nature anyway. Because at this point, when that, when that tip happens, when they switch over, mm-hmm. they're going to stop drawing comb as well. Because comb is a huge resource drain. So once they know, okay, our bountiful season has ended now we're coming up on the time of, of conserving and needing everything to survive this dearth period. They're not going to go and consume all of that food to build new comb because then they would have no food. So it only works if you've got that drawn comb, but again, it goes back to that natural perspective. Uh, (laughs) you want me to bring that up now? Hop guard. Go ahead. Oh, well, (laughs) no, go to say your hop
0: guard thing. (laughs) So, uh, Hop guard three, you know, back in May, I noticed late May before it started raining up here I noticed that Max, we did an inspection. Max says, Hey, dad, you know, some of our, several of your colonies have got mites. I saw some of them on the back. Okay. And especially one was, he saw several had a mite. So, uh, we checked, uh, all the ones at Mike's two of them had nothing. Two of them had. Mites pretty high, so we, you know, here it is in May. Uh, we put hop guard because you had said we can't use uh, LMS Q strips or whatever the uh, because of the heat <laughs> max, whatever they M-A-Q-S, are, maqs max, yeah, formic acid, <laughs> yeah, I was close, so we put, I said, well. got to try something uh tried hop guard three hop guard three says okay it's good from 58 to 92 degrees or something like that so i put them in in four colonies and it's on the other side of the creek where you can't get to if it starts raining and i didn't want to rut the man's road up if i was driving in his pasture so started raining kept raining i did an inspection would have been, I guess, the 3rd of July. Three colonies gone, absconded. Uh, they did abscond. They, they were gone. I'm sitting there, okay, hop guard to 92 degrees. It got hotter than that. I had left it in, and they said it's fine to leave the hop guard in because the bees will just tear it up, and it falls to the bottom of the baseboard, a bottom board. I said, okay, yeah, they're fine. Got there, did an inspection Saturday. Three out of the four colonies gone absconded so uh now the fourth they're still there they just happy as they can be but three out of the 4 were gone so that's all i can say i don't know i think if heat <sighs> probably should just left them alone, fed the hell out of them or not fed them because now we got mesquites it's crazy up here i mean it's crazy how the mesquites are up here uh and then we had Indian blanket. That was just wonderful. I checked the two colonies that were great. They're heavy. I mean, they are heavy. In fact, I'm going to put another box on because the mesquite's still blooming. We didn't get rain. So a lot of green mesquites on out there. So, you know, the little flower. So we're going to keep having mesquite. So I'm putting more, mes- uh, more boxes on with comb and, uh, we'll go from there and see what happens and but uh i don't know these, these uh, the more i listen to natalie about natural beekeeping the more i'm thinking because let's see uh the natural the feral bees they were the ones that were low on mite count and then the other colony that was it was a feral colony that the Hop Guard didn't bother. And so I don't know, I'm starting to get kind of lean more towards, instead of buying these high dollar Queens from other parts of the country, maybe lean more towards like you do raising Queens, Gen two and Gen three Queens from our area. Well, that's a a good
1: possibility. And speaking of Natalie and the Natural Beekeeping Corner, it is
0: the first Monday of the month. So it's time to be mindful and take a more bee-centric look inside our hives. Welcome to the Natural
3: Beekeeping Corner
0: with our host, Natalie B.
3: Welcome back to the Natural Beekeeping Corner with our your host Natalie B. And today I have a very special guest, uh, Les Crowder, who's my mentor and also my business partner at Be Mindful. And uh, today he's going to kind of tell us a little bit about his story. If you have questions, uh, you can always join us at be mindfulhoneyfarms at gmail.com and or on our website, be-mindful.com. I want to remind you also that we do, Les and I, Every Thursday, 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Central uh, US time, a chat with the mindful beekeepers. We broadcast that on Zoom and Instagram simultaneously. And those recordings from every week's um, segments are posted on our Instagram account at Be Mindful Honey Farms. So I encourage you to join us to ask your questions every week. The other thing that we're going to start doing is collecting listeners' questions. And every month on the Natural Beekeeping Corner, we're going to answer a few questions from our listeners at the end of the segment so that we can address your most pressing needs. So don't hesitate to send us your questions and we'll be happy to address them. So welcome, Les. Uh, You don't need any introduction. (laughs) Thank you for joining me today.
2: Thank you for having me.
3: So for those of you who uh, don't know Les Crowder yet or haven't heard the previous episode on the Hive Jive or other podcasts or looked at his recordings on YouTube, he's, um, he needs no introduction. He's world famous. He wrote that book, The Top Bar Beekeeping, Organic Practices for Honeybee Health. He's been doing beekeeping for over 50 years. He started as a young adult, a teenager, really. And um, he has a degree in biology. He has been, uh, he used to keep bees with a commercial beekeeper uh, and that had over 4,000 hives. He's gone through thousands and thousands of hives, including Langstroth and Tabar hives in various countries. And um, he's been working mostly Tabar hives and natural treatment-free bees for over 30 years now. And you can find his uh, specs for his hives and the improvements we're working on um, for to make it more accessible to everybody um, at b mindful.com slash plans. So less with that, uh, and the fact that you have, I think you have a degree in biology, you're a trained biologists, mm-hmm. and you used to be the president of the New Mexico Beekeepers Association, and now you're the president of the Hayes County Beekeepers Association. So uh mm-hmm. th- yeah. Tell us a little bit about um, what's gotten you into natural beekeeping and what changed when from your commercial beekeeping times to the way you keep bees today.
2: Well, when I first started keeping bees, I was, I just returned back to my mom's home in a little town in New Mexico. And I was kind of at, uh, I was kind of lost, like I didn't want to see my old buddies because they were in a lot of trouble and I didn't want to continue hanging out with them. But I didn't know anybody else. And my grandpa lived with us, my mom's dad. And he um, he came to me the morning that my buddies were heading to come and see me. And he said, "Lest there's a swarm of bees out back. And I thought, what is that? I had no idea what that was. And he said, well, come and see. And my mom had gotten a beehive, a Langstroth box, but she'd never put any bees in it. It was just sitting in her garage. And he said, let's put them in your mom's box. So I didn't know what he was talking about. So he went and got the box and put on a bee veil. I just walked out the back and I saw him. And it was like one of those moments where time just stood still for me. It's like something said to me, "This is what I gotta do. This is, this is my future. This is, this is real important." And it just, I was just sort of transfixed. They smelled like bread. Mm-hmm. They were buzzing peacefully. There's a few flying around, but a nice big swarm about the size of a basketball, about head height. We didn't know what to do, so we opened the box, and it was full of frames. We thought, well, they'll never fit in there. <laughs> Took all the frames out, cut the branch very trepidatiously, and lowered it into the box and put the lid on it. And, of course, they, they did stay, and they built comb on the branch and, and every which way. And But I, I, I started keeping bees, and it was like a... They started keeping me, really. It was like a magical time. I remember carrying it and feeling it in my chest and feeling like, this feels just so good. This feels right. The energy of it, right? Yeah. And it just felt like somehow their buzzing just resonated with me. Mm -hmm. So I went... Yeah, very much connected. I went and got books about beekeeping At the library, I studied beekeeping. I realized that we did things the wrong way and put in some frames and got them started on the frames little by little and cleaned out the branch. And I started keeping bees. Then I went to work for a commercial beekeeper. I thought, well, that's what I, I got my degree in biology at the University of New Mexico. And that was, you know, I was interested in entomology and botany. Mainly, I was interested in botany because of I needed to know the flowers that the bees were uh, visiting. It wasn't. And then I found a job with a commercial beekeeper with four thousand hives, and I thought, well, that's what I really want to do is I want to be a beekeeper, hundred percent. But, was that what
3: you expected when you first started with that commercial beekeeper?
2: Yeah, that's what I thought, that I just work for, i become a commercial beekeeper, basically. Okay. And just dedicate my time, you know, 100% to keeping bees, lots of bees.
3: And the way he was keeping the bees, did that sit well with you from the get-go, or did you start developing, uh-huh. you know, um, doubts about the way he was keeping his bees?
2: There, there were things that bothered me right at the very beginning. I got hired in the spring and our job was to put supers on without queen excluders and then we'd drive them out of the supers, let, them, let the queen lay some eggs in the supers. Then we'd use a fume board and a carbolic acid, which is now illegal, to drive the bees out of the super the queen excluder on his philosophy was that they don't go through the queen excluder if there's no brood above it oh you wanted to get them seated right so they'd quickly and easily go through the queen excluder because he didn't want to read his goal was 100 honey production honey production that's all he cared about and well i mean he sold honey by the barrel oh wow so You know, I mean, he did sell some retail and wholesale. He did some bottling, but most of his honey, he sold in 55 gallon drums. And the price, there were several problems. My personal problem was I didn't like the fume boards. And then when we would take the fume boards off, the bees would quickly try to come back up and we'd be, he just slap the super on there with a queen excluder, and it would be covered in bees. And I would try to set it down gently, and he'd like, we ain't got time for that, and just smash 100 bees every time you put a super on.
3: Which is the problem with the Langstroth hives, right? Because they've got all those contacts and flat surfaces.
2: Right, yeah, between the frames and all around the box. And it was just a big splat every time. And I felt like, well, that just didn't sit right with me. It, and, you know, I had had another vision before all this. My grandpa, they developed cancer and eventually passed away. I mean, he was in his eighties or whatever, but um, I really, he and I connected really well in a lot of ways. When I was a little kid, I, were, I played in his garden. He was an organic gardener. So it was safe in his garden. My mom's garden had white dust and I wasn't allowed in it for good reason. It was full of poison. Mm -hmm. And so, and grandpa taught me to cut trees, the little branches on cottonwoods, and put them in water and get let roots grow on them and then put them in dirt. Mm -hmm. We planted cottonwood trees all over the place. (laughs) And we just had a lot of fun with nature together. So he had an iris patch a patch of irises in all different colors and when he got really sick I was helping take care of his stuff for him I was a teenager and his irises were in full bloom and I thought I'm gonna try to get him out of his bed and get him out in his iris patch and he was all skin and bones he hardly had any muscle laughter no fat and... but he got out there in his walker and he got in the middle of his iris patch and he said, Les, I think we need to water it a little more. Why don't you turn the hose on? So I turned the hose on. It was a frost-free bib because in New Mexico it gets really cold. But I remembered when I was a little kid, we had a worm bed in front of that bib and we raised earthworms. Oh, we cool. fed them manure and um, animal manure and watermelon rinds and You know, there was a fun little project. And then a mint plant got started in it and it kind of took it over. So we said, okay, fine, we'll make mint tea. So we let it be a mint patch. And I was standing there waiting for him to tell me to turn the hose off. And the mint was blooming with little tiny purple flowers and an all black honeybee, just completely black, came and started sipping nectar from the flowers. And by that time, I had five hives, and one of them was all black bees.
3: And I thought that
2: was your bee. I know where that bee lives. (laughs) I know where she comes from. And I'm going to go stick a spoon in some nectar somewhere in that hive. It was early in the spring. There wasn't really much honey yet, but there was some nectar. And Grandpa and I are going to taste honey from our mint plant in 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 an hour or so. And so for a minute, the bee on the flower was like a religious experience. It was like, wow, I felt time stopped and I was connected to the sun and the moon and the roots and the dirt and the, everything all made sense. And so then when I started putting carbolic acid on a bunch of bees and yeah, that's smashing a bunch thing. of bees. It felt like, well, that's not my vision at all. That's the anti-vision.
3: Yeah, that's the opposite of your vision.
2: Yeah, and the other thing was, I had just been working in a dairy, and I was disgusted with the what they were feeding the cows, and how they were treating the cows. You know, I milked six hundred cows a day by myself with machines. Right, Mm -hmm. and that was considered a a big dairy in those days. But it's out of business and. Way too small these days. You know, you milk thousands and thousands. And the cows are treated, they can't even walk. They, they can't, their udders are so large, they can barely stand up. They're bred for milk production. For that, yeah. And the disease
3: set in and, and they've got ulcers. and
2: Yeah. And they're fed chicken manure and newspapers and all kinds of crap. Just junk mm-hmm. that is, you know, cheap. And they figure out a way to put a little protein in it or something. Right. So I thought, well, this is going to be the same thing. Only it's going to be bees where industry is going to take bees and we're going to just run them through it's our milk Yeah. and grind them up and wonder why, why they're all dying on us all the time. And why they get sick so much. Yeah. And the the indiscriminate use of antibiotics in those days, as soon as you thought they might have a little disease problem, you Administered teramycin in powdered sugar, and and then another thing that happened was we were using ethylene dibromide to kill the wax moths in the supers, and there were thirty five thousand supers, so it was a big warehouse full of supers.
3: So to to specify the reason there were so many supers in warehouses is because when the Langstroth hives are harvested. The honey is extracted from the frames and those frames with the wax uh, left over from the extraction are stored up to be reused the next season. So you end up with organic material that's stored up in tight quarters with poor ventilation and you end up having the pests that the bees usually keep at bay, coming and invade those supers and potentially eat them up. So that, uh, that substance, that chemical, was meant to keep those critters at bay, right?
2: Right, and there are wax moths on every honeycomb in the world, pretty much. Right. And the bees constantly find the larvae and kill them and throw them out. But as soon as you take a comb away from bees, particularly, and put it in a nice, dark, warmish warehouse. Mm -hmm. The wax moths just proliferate, and a few mate and lay eggs, and pretty soon there's thousands. Invasion. And they destroy the combs. And these combs were wet with honey. They'd been extracted, but they were still slightly sticky with honey. It was perfect wax moth. Heading room, yeah. (laughs) In, In a warehouse in darkness, which the moths love. And so, you had to fumigate them with something. Nowadays, the allowed chemical is paradichlorobenzene, which is also carcinogenic. We were using ethylene dibromide, which is very carcinogenic, and it's been banned for any number of years. Did but, you
3: say, though, that for a while it remained allowed for, uh, so it was banned for everybody else except beekeepers who had lobbied to keep it so that they could keep, treat their supers with it?
2: Yes. And the the thing is, that got in the news. Mm -hmm. And that made beekeepers furious. So it got in the news, well, this chemical that we've commonly used has now been banned from all farming activities except beekeepers. And the beekeepers were like, oh, no, don't say that to anybody. Don't let the public
3: know that we're using chemicals in our beehives.
2: Right. And it's particularly one that's so serious that it's been banned for everybody else that made... Beekeepers look terrible. Well, uh, live up to the truth, you know. You're using a very terrible chemical, and you have to admit it. Yeah, you can't say they are not using it.
3: Well, especially when you know that uh, wax is lipophilic and will absorb a bunch of uh, toxic chemicals and keep it, and and it can get passed to the honey itself that people consume. So they need to know what's in their honey.
2: Right, and and ethylene dibromide was particularly. Lipophilic itself, so it would absorb into the wax, and you could smell it when you went in the warehouse in the spring to take the supers out. You could smell it real strong, and then you put it on the beehives. This whole thing was just like I realized I can't. uh, Once I started, I realized it was ethylene dibromide. That was my the straw that broke the camel's back. I decided I've had it. I can't work here anymore. I just. There's too many things wrong with the way we're keeping bees. It wasn't sustainable
3: anymore, Yep.
2: The other thing was that the future wasn't there anyway because the honey price per barrels of honey when you're on the world market was way too low. You couldn't produce honey and make any money. And um, it just it what, pushed everybody it... to pollination. And these large-scale beekeepers started doing pollination to make money.
3: Is it kind of a still true that the prices on the world market for honey are actually quite low because of markets being floated by, flooded by imports and, and heavy production from countries that are less scrupulous and actually mix a lot of things in their honey, including high fructose corn syrup and, and uh, sugar syrup and all kinds of illegal substances and mass producing and basically just driving the prices down so isn't it still the case?
2: Right. Yeah. If you sell honey by the barrel, you, you're not going to make much money or any money. You're going to lose money. Um, and the, there's there was an expose done several years ago in which they showed that companies were able to bring container loads or truck loads of a substance that would meet all the Requirements and pass the tests, and they would even buy bee pollen and put it in the fake honey, seed it mm-hmm. to make it so that you look in there and see it's even got bee pollen in it. So yeah, because the
3: testing um, looks for pollen to verify authenticity of the honey and potentially provenance of the honey.
2: Right, exactly. So that the, that scene, uh, large scale beekeeping for honey production, just doesn't work. No, volume doesn't work.
3: You, you yeah. end up with not making enough profit on volume. It's like the honey market got Walmart uh, version of it. Nothing, <laughs> I'm not gonna get into Walmart pros and cons, but the, the volume ended up being the issue, right?
2: Right, and there was, a. I mean, I had experiences. For instance, you could put your honey on loan with the government for a subsidy, And then redeem it. And most of the beekeepers did that. But then there came a year when they couldn't afford to redeem it because they'd have to pay back part of the loan. So they just left it sit there. And it turned out that the barrels would leak because they were full of water or sand or six inches of dead bees floating on the top of the barrels. Oh, my goodness. Because nobody thought that anybody cared, you know. When they would and ferment,
3: they would, I bet too.
2: Fermented and that would cause the leakage because it would eventually rupture a barrel. Pressure. Like if it was slightly rusty already. Mm-hmm. And it, it just became this big mess, you know. And I realized that's not the type of beekeeping I can do. I just can't do that. So So, I,
3: so what happened? What did you what did you change? What how did you make it work for you?
2: So at the time I'd been um, following the kind of the commercial standard of, you know, you should give them antibiotic in the spring. I mean, in the fall, the recipes. And I quit working for the um, commercial beekeeper. I became honeybee inspector for an MDA. And the, at the time, a man named Steve Tabor, who was a PhD entomologist and a bee, had been a bee scientist. He was basically retired and it, known to be somewhat, Oh, audacious or somewhat of a scoundrel at times. Mm-hmm. Like a rebel. Yeah. He started printing articles in the American Bee Journal about breeding bees for disease resistance. In those days, we didn't have mites. We just had a big problem was American fowl brood. European foul brood was... Nosema, maybe? Yeah. Nozema was somewhat of a problem. But the big one seemed to be everybody was trying to get their handle on American fowl brood. And that's why we use the antibiotics. And as soon as I read that article, I started breeding for bees that were disease resistant. And he was basically advocating killing a little patch of brood by what he would do is get a ring of PVC pipe, Mm -hmm. put the brood, put it on the brood, pour a little bit of liquid nitrogen and freeze it and then put it back in the hive. And then bees that removed all the larvae in 24 hours, he considered hygienic. And if they didn't, then they weren't very hygienic or they were partially hygienic or whatever. And that that was the big key to disease resistance.
3: That they would they, take care of the diseased bodies and pull them out of the hive so that the hive wouldn't be contaminated. It would it would be like a sanitation method the bees implemented, right?
2: Right. And but so, and he at the time wrote somewhere about look at the old bee books before we had antibiotics. How did they handle the disease? So I went and got a 1929, I still have it somewhere, AI root beekeeping, you know, how to keep bees. And it said at the, the American Fabricator gave a description, said what to do, keep clean comb in the brood nest and requeen with resistant stock. Oh, they knew already. How are pioneering of them. <laughs> yeah, this was back in the 20s. And I thought, well, as soon as we got antibiotics, we, got, we became convinced you can't keep bees without antibiotics. But we did until, we, until then. We kept right. bees fine on large scales. The Egyptians kept hundreds of hives in, all together on boats on the Nile River that they would move up and down the river on barges to follow blooms. So it it wasn't just that, that was sort of commercial beekeeping back in time of the Pharaohs, right?
3: And the, yeah, the problem is that industrial agriculture has put a different mindset in, where you rely on silver bullets and medication to basically counter the drawbacks of putting animals in conditions that are not sustainable. Intense, you know, um, um, basically they're next to on top of each other, high concentrations. Those highs are really exploited to the maximum. We take all their food and we put them in very stressful situations. And in top, on top of that, on commercial beekeeping, we transport them and and um, put them across the country. And, and we accept, accept, expect them to be um, healthy and produce for us. So that's really unsustainable. And what I like to say uh, all the time is that a- a bees are animals as well, and they deserve to be in good health. So... Right. That's, that's kind of counter to what happens when you put them on top of each other that way.
2: Right, and like we, we see the difference, like even from New Mexico to Texas, there's a climate difference, a pretty big noticeable climate difference. So a bee that is very well adapted to Southern Texas might not do very well in right. Northern New Mexico. And just expect a bee that we can take from Texas to North Dakota to almonds in California, to the apples in Washington, to blueberries in Maine, and then back to Texas. Well, mm-hmm. those poor bees. They're spending half their time exactly. in trucks, mm-hmm. breathing an exhaust. And you know, they're fed high fructose corn syrup, which is very cheap, and but it's not good for the bees. And so the whole system just bothered me. And then I, I began experimenting with. I had begun already experimenting with top bar hives. And to me, they were just fun. They were like so relaxing. I had my laying stress, but I had 10 or 12 top bar hives. And that would be where I'd go to de-stress. I'd go out and just hang out with my top bar buddies. And they were very, the calmest bees. It wasn't that the bees were any calmer, but I was calmer. And it was so much easier <laughs> To lift the comb and put it back, and not kill any bees, right? And that kept the bees calmer. And I began to develop a real feel for the topper hive. And then, when the mites came, I still had about 200 Langstroth hives, and they really devastated me. They, the Varroa mite, killed most of my bees several years in a row. And I decided one year, well, I can't afford to really reinvest in my Langstroth equipment, equipment. which is very expensive. Yeah, very. And it, it was getting pretty beat up. You know, I had already nailed it and re-nailed it and re-nailed it. And I needed to throw it away and buy new. But I thought, well, I, the bees won't pay for themselves now. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to build 30 top bar hives of my most recent design at the time.
3: Which you could do with very cheap uh, materials or free materials when you reclaim the woods, right?
2: Right. So I figured at the time that the top bar hive cost me about $10 in investment. And, um, you know, an hour or two in labor to build, I was scrapping, finding scrap wood for my top bars, just buying a board to make the hive body out of. And it was pretty cheap in those, this was back in the, late eighties, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I thought, well, I'll build 30 of them buy packages, which was a bummer to me because I'd been breeding bees for diseases. Yeah. I had to go back to square one, but they took off and they, we had a pretty good year and actually made a little bit of honey and selling retail. is a whole different story. You can actually make some money. Right. If you get a good base of customers, you can make pretty good money selling retail. So I made a few thousand dollars. And then I thought, well, now I should invest this in my Langstroth equipment. But if I do, that's, it's just gone. Going back to square one, yeah. And why would I do that? And I found a way to, to I can, for way less than a tenth the price, a twentieth of the price, I could just build a bunch more top hives. Right. That but you enjoy it better. Yeah. Yeah. And I realized that I could bring top bar, up to a semi small commercial scale, make a pretty good business out of it. And it was cheaper, It was less input.
3: You were one of the only ones, and one of the first ones, if not the first one, to do commercial beekeeping and pollination contracts at the time with Tabar hives, right?
2: Right. And I, I didn't expect to do pollination contracts, but I had been, I started breeding queens in Tabar hives. And those 30 original top bar hives that I made were only three feet long. And I ran into trouble with them because they'd fill with brood Mm -hmm. and get ready to swarm. And there was no, I couldn't take any comb out because it was all brood and everything. And so I realized I made them too small. So then when I wanted to make top bar queen mating nooks, I thought, well, that's perfect. I'll put a partition in them and I'll put, I'll cut them in half. Because I don't want very big hives. I want tiny little hives that are easy to find the queen in. Right. So that's what I did. And I overwintered them that way. And then one year, the almond growers said, we're desperate for almond pollination. And the prices had gone way up to $150 a hive or something. And I, somebody called me and I said, well, I have bees, but they're in Tupper Hives. And they said, if they're honeybees, we'll take them. <laughs> And I said, well, okay, that's, how would I do that? You know, and so I put together a truckload of 100 at $150 a hive. Wow, that was for me huge. That was like February, I could make a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. And so, but I was worried that I was gonna break combs, but I, I may have put all my bees into double boxes, put partitions in them, stacked them three high on the, the truck and a trailer, Drove them to Modesto, California, loaded them at night, you know, drove, netted the load, drove them the whole distance, unloaded them right in the orchard. And it, I didn't hardly break any comb. And I remember hitting potholes in Arizona on I 40 where the trailer literally bounced boom, 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 boom. Oh, wow. It was like, oh, no, it's going to break up all the combs. But it didn't, it didn't break any comb. And so I did pollination for a few years and then I started losing bees in the almonds. They, they build up good. And then all of a sudden they declined. Turned out that they were using pristine, they called it, which was a pesticide. It was an herbicide and a fungicide in a dormant oil. Oh. And, uh, and I thought, why are you using it? Well, the fungicide to keep it, the um, fungus out of the flowers, and the herbicide to keep down the weeds, and they just spray one time, you know. So So
3: that's a triple whammy right there. You got pesticides that are uh, negatively impacting the bees in the first place. The fungicide kind of, uh, uh, they, they also have a detrimental effect, but together the pesticides and the fungicides have a synergic effect that's much worse than the sum of them two separately and it's in the carrying oil, which is lip, uh, allows the wax uh, from the beehives and the combs to absorb it even better because it's lipophilic, right?
2: Right, it, it w- and it, he told me, well, my, my entomologist t- assures me that it, it won't hurt the bees. Yeah. And I said, who's that? Well, basically the salesman from the company. Oh, oh well, great. I'm glad, because they call it a fungicide and bees aren't fungus and herbicide and bees aren't herb, aren't plants. Well, but it kills bees in the long run. Bees use good fungus to help them store their pollen. And we all use good microbes in our guts to help us absorb our food and even make neurotransmitters for our brains. So I quit pollinating after that because he basically said, look, I'm paying you so much, it shouldn't matter. Meaning he had a hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah. If I kill him, go buy some new bees. And I was like, no, I my bees aren't disposable. I'm not I'm not coming back, you know. And that was just that's the few that was the future of beekeeping, in which I thought, well, that's not the future, that's the past already.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, that's yeah, that and the the tabar hives, I believe natural sustainable beekeeping and tabar horizontal dabar beekeeping is the future of beekeeping, especially because it allows individuals in their own backyards to keep the bees and produce their own honey and and, um, just kind of like improve on the pollination around them. So I I personally, I'm very biased, but I think that the the writing is on the wall and that's what's the future of beekeeping.
2: Well, when you compare, I appreciate that because I, I, I tend to agree. Back in the 70s, when I started Tupper Hives, a few of them, uh, it was just an experiment. It was considered a third world hive because they were cheaper and easier to make. And I thought, well, I was always interested in third world life, you know, hanging out with farmers in Mexico and simple life. Just, yeah. Because I found them to be, yeah, they didn't have any money, but they had plenty of food and they had a lot of time and they were happy. And the, so I built some top bar hives and I was the only one I knew. And then I had become president of New Mexico beekeepers and I would tell people about them. They'd be like, oh, that's fine if you're an African or something, but it doesn't, you know, it's not a real beehive. And then a few other people tried him and really liked him. And what the big change is when women started beekeeping. Back in the 70s, there was one woman beekeeper in New Mexico beekeepers. And her husband had died and she had taken over. Everybody thought she was real weird. But she came to all our meetings. And she was very vociferous. And Mm -hmm. she was the only one. And then sometime in the late 70s, early 80s, women started trickling in. And by the 90s, women became the majority of beekeepers.
3: Well, and they probably came in with a completely unbiased look at the way things were being done and brought in some new perspectives because until then, things were being passed down and repeated as accepted methods that were uh, basically always the same things. This is the way you do things. And when you bring people that have not done this before and that can help with the problem solving and that looking at it with a fresh eye, it's not only the fact that they were women, but also that they were outsiders that kind of allowed right. to bring in a different perspective, right?
2: Right. And we had a lot of people beginning to question, well, antibiotics, for one thing. When I was a kid, I'd say, well, we shouldn't be using antibiotics. And they'd say, what are you, Amish or communist or <laughs> hippie or well, what's the matter with you? you know, the, 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 the modern living through better living, granula, to living yeah." yeah. <laughs> This is the new world, you know, go. And I thought, well, and now, of course, then they said you can't keep bees without antibiotics. It's immoral of you to try because the bees are going to get sick and they're going to pass the disease to us when our bees rob out your bees which is the same thing they're saying now about the mite bomb. I
3: was going to say that's exactly. And I, and I got into another discussion recently. I, I you know, you and I, we have created um, in our area, especially and um, in the broader community, um, an area of uh, where you can speak freely about natural uh, treatment free and, and just kind of doing things uh, with top hives and, or, you um, you know, with the bees in mind, rather than the beekeeper, you know, exploiting the bees. And we we forget, I forget personally, sometimes that there's still people out there that are convinced that we create mind bombs, that we, they're convinced that if you don't treat your bees, they're going to die, that are listening to uh, teachings from um, research that has one a lot of times be paid by um, chemical companies for their own benefits, so they're biased, mm-hmm. and also uh, that are aimed at commercial beekeeping and not necessarily backyard beekeeping where things are completely different. I mean, I talked about it in one of the past episodes is commercial beekeepers. Yeah, we, you know, it's hard on the bees but it's also hard on them. And there's a reason why they're doing it this way because again, they can't compete on the honey prices and their conditions are, are difficult, they're, they're farmers and they've got certain constraints. So they're trying to work with that, which means those conditions for the bees are harder and they have to do things differently. They have to treat because their bees are weak and they're not resilient and they've got uh, high stakes. So,
2: right. oh, so uh, I, forget.
3: I forget that we're in a bubble, basically. Of,
2: right. Mm-hmm. And the commercial beekeeping is pollinating a lot of our food. It is, and, and it's useful. And it is useful and it is hard. I remember talking to a Texan beekeeper who had 10,000 hives and he said, heck, I wouldn't want my kid to do this. It's too much work and it don't pay. Right. Well, it's tough. It's a, you know, your field bill is $300,000 for the year. That's you got a big monkey on your back, just pushing you and you can't afford to lose bees. It's an unsustainable model. Yeah. Yeah. It just doesn't work. But so, what is the future? And I see the future in, in combining what we've learned from big farming like that with smaller scale, like going more and more organic, which has grown tremendously, but still needs to grow a lot more, finding natural solutions to our disease problems. So as a beekeeper, what are the natural solutions to our disease and parasit- parasite problems? Well, brood breaks, breeding for mite resistance, breeding for disease resistance, keeping the bees healthy, renewing the comb in the brood nest. And so I feel like we have gotten to the point here in Southern Texas, in particular, where we don't need any unsustainable, we don't need plastic, we don't need chemicals. We can keep bees. The bees can keep themselves very well without our intervention. And anybody who says bees can't survive without our chemical protection hasn't seen your warree hive, right?
3: No. Yeah. Seven, eight, seven and a half years in the making, and I've never treated a fed or anything. And that thing is the healthiest and biggest one of my hives.
2: Yeah. So the bees can live without our chemical protection. And the, the Puerto Ricans and the Jamaicans. And the Africans and the South Americans have all been proving that because they can't afford the miticides or they can't, it's hard to get them there.
3: When mm. they have the viral mites over there uh, and, and yet those bees are not um, suffering from them the way they do, from, uh, they do in the United States because they've been allowed, they, they've taken their losses first then the bees have recovered really quickly. Whereas when we keep treating them even as a transition process, we're not allowing them to develop the strategies that they need to fund for themselves. And it's, you know, if you, if you treat any colonies, you're not breeding survivors, you're breeding chemical dependent bees.
2: Right. And, and we did that exactly with uh, teramycin. We bred chemical dependent, antibiotic dependent bees, and we were told you can't keep bees without antibiotics. And now all of a sudden, oh, Actually, you have to breed for mite, for disease resistance. You have to breed. You shouldn't use antibiotics. Well, the same thing is going to happen with viral mite treatments. They are toxic. They have to be because they have to kill the mite. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be finally, we're going to realize that there is mite resistance. And there is breeding the mite down too. The mite and the bee have to breed together. Mm-hmm. And the mite wants a thriving host. So the mite will breed itself down to where it doesn't threaten the bees' longevity, but we have to let nature breed itself to that level. And our use of miticides keeps mites susceptible bees and overly virulent mites. Mm -hmm. And then we wind up back at square one again.
3: Yeah, I think that people can hear why I find um, you so valuable as my mentor and friend. Because we're, you know, I'm learning a lot from you and we both agree on the same things. Um, What would you say of the um, organic quote unquote treatments such as the acids, the formic acid in particular, and the oxalic acid that are so prevalent right now and the way people are using them uh, prophylactically to basically knock back mite numbers based on a certain
2: threshold? Yeah, so... I did experiment with formic acid back at the beginning of the mites in New Mexico because it was hard to keep bees alive. The bees would, you could literally at one point open a hive and see two or three mites on every single bee. And then shortly thereafter, there'd be no bees or mites in the beehive. They'd all be dead. So I I found out that formic acid is, yeah, it may be a natural substance, but not at that Concentration, in other words, it's very it smells terrible. It burns your eyes, burns the bees' eyes. It That's can drive the bees completely out of the hive if it if it vaporizes too much. the bees can It can also kill them, right? Yeah, kill
3: the queen or
2: yeah. And so, you know, it may be slightly better than amitraz in some ways or kumafas. but it isn't the solution. The solution is to learn to keep bees naturally without interventions. And that can fairly easily be done. Yes. It just, it takes dedication. And there are bee scientists who believe that, but Mm -hmm. they've been kind of silent. It seems to me the main, like the American Bee Journal and so forth, don't seem to give them a lot of publications. They seem to be more interested in publishing Here's the latest treatment to come up with. Here's the latest chemical you know
3: well, I think part of it is that the uh, the the community that pushes for those chemical treatments, what ultra emotive very often is has got a very much uh, financial vested interest in that happening uh, either because they're selling the products that are used for the be treating the bees or because they're selling bees that need the chemicals to To stay alive, and therefore their narrative, their story is, you cannot do it, and your bees are no good if they're not treated, because otherwise they can't sell their treated bees.
2: Right. Yeah. And and it be and so something like the American Bee Journal has to not offend its advertisers, yeah. And that often changes the way news, you know, gets spread. Like. Well,
3: There's that, and there's
2: the fact that a
3: lot of the funding goes to the research on treatments for that same
2: reason. Right, exactly. Universities do research that is sponsored by chemical companies, and then the chemical companies own the research. And if they don't like the results, they don't publish them. If they do like the results, they publish them. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they're only going to publish something that's going to make them money, they're not right. going to publish something that doesn't. So,
3: yeah. So I just realized that we're we're talking about treatments, but you know, people that use those, they they are. It's not like they're doing anything wrong. I don't want to criticize people that are treating their bees because they are trying to help their bees. What I would like to know is how, what's your best advice to give once people are hearing our message and kind of questioning the status quo. There, what's your best advice for people that are wanting to start keeping their bees more sustainably, what's the process, what are the tools you can recommend for them to use and can anyone do that?
2: Yeah, that's a good point, that's perfect. Um, I think that one thing is try to get good bees. So if you can get local swarm or something like that or do it if it's a simple cutout like a water meter is pretty simple try to find a way to get started with some local bees. Because those bees likely haven't been treated rather than buy commercial stock that kind of is dependent on treatment or to get your bees even to raise a daughter queen. It would really be helpful.
3: Like if you were to, um, for any reason, you had sourced initially uh, non-local bees and or treated bees, at the very least, you can encourage them to to have enough springs queen that's going to go mate with the local drones and that's going to bring in those more resilient genetics and 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 less of that uh treatment dependency right
2: right, so leave them in one box or in a small portion of a tupper hive and let them get to where they' make queen cells to get ready to swarm and then make a divide and then get the daughter or maybe take two of those. There's queen cells on two combs to find out how to make them into two hives and raise some local queens. And it can be a lot of fun actually. And then the other thing is, you know, check for mites, look for mites, but don't automatically treat. Mm-hmm. Prophylactic treatment means, I don't know, so I'm just gonna treat as if they had them. Preventively, then,
3: prophylactically, yeah.
2: yeah. And that, that doesn't give the bees a chance to prove that they could do without it. And I've seen bees even that had quite a bit of shriveled wing that came out of it. Shriveled wing is a sign that they've got mite, mites biting on them and it's passing the virus. The, yeah, the deformed wing virus. Right, transferring the wing virus to the, the baby bees. Uh, but so I've seen bees even with quite a bit of that that recovered naturally without any help. It was generally in the fall when it got more noticeable, and the bees went ahead and survived the winter anyway. This was in Los Angeles, California. Mm -hmm. And then in the spring, they took off, and there was no deformed wing virus visible anymore. I mean, I'm sure it was there, but the bees were overcoming it. So have faith The bees can live without miticides. And then if you come a, start getting a lot of mites in your beehive, uh, then look at some, like I would use cedar bark. I would put cedar.
3: So you would actually treat a little bit. Yeah. Basically. Well, I, but that's like, I, like an extreme case, right? And then I,
2: I actually haven't done this in 15, 20 years. I've never seen you do this. <laughs> no, I remember, Cause mostly what I would do is I'd say, well, this hive is going downhill. And I try to requeen it, or I just let it go, because I'd kill the queen, and just combine or shake the
3: bees in front of another one.
2: Yeah, because I know that most of the bees around here are good groomers, and they're they're going to handle those mites just fine. You know, I, I have a man I met at a natural beekeeping conference that we became friends. He lives in France, but he was born and raised in Dr. Ohio. T- Dr. John Keefis, and he he actually pays people who have a lot of mites because he wants mites to test his bees with, and he he says, I can't hardly find any mites in my own bees, and he's in France, and he doesn't treat at all, right. and he's a, a PhD entomologist from Ohio State. He was more trained in oh Oh, my alma That's where I did my MBA. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, and he's in France, so I'm, I'm sure so we got friends. we got
3: we got kinship. I need you to know. talk to
2: him <laughs> yeah you should he He's a really interesting guy. He does beekeeping in Chile in the winter just to keep in the bees yeah. and he's a, he's very in into breeding queens, so we know that we can keep bees all over the world without chemical protection and it's just a matter of slowly convincing people in spite of the fact that they can't kind of have the mega phone of the American Bee Journal and all the big publications that tell everybody that we're liars and we're wrong.
3: Right. So let me play the devil's advocate for a second. Um, the people that hear us say, well, you got to have the faith and, and well, my bees, I you know, they, they were expensive to me. I can't afford to lose them, and I I just can't rely just on the faith that it's going to work out. What are the practical tools? The, I mean, you you mentioned basically uh, re- letting your queen make a, a new queen and and get mated with local drones, and there's a couple of other techniques you mentioned. Um, what are other of the techniques that you would say that anybody can do to right away improve their chances of success when not treating?
2: Well, Tom Seeley showed that they like small hives where they get to swarm. And there's a, the swarm, of course, means that there's a brief time when there's nobody laying eggs. And that passes a brood break through the brood cycle where there's no brood of a certain age. And that really drops the mite population down. So that's and that, that would also then be raising a daughter queen, which right. is gonna hopefully be more mite resistant, a better groomer, more um sensitive hygiene trait possibly. So So here's
3: yeah. here's another idea. Um Small hives, not everybody wants to keep small hives because they want bees, they want to grow their apiary, they want to get some honey. And also they hear out the advice that uh, bigger hives are uh, more able to overwinter Uh, and and defend themselves against pests and pathogens. Here's another way I'm looking at it personally, is I will still have bigger hives and encourage them to brood up and make space and just kind of give them uh, all the opportunities to grow bigger. And then when they're bigger, split them and take the queen out and and just put it somewhere else so they'd still get that brood break. Would that work, Les?
2: Yeah, that could work. There's a lot of things we need to try. Mm -hmm. and a lot of creative ideas that's the good uh, the good thing about getting a lot of people involved is everybody's mind thinks differently Mm -hmm. and we need to try all these ideas and then we need to communicate our failures and successes so that we well i tried this and it didn't work and then well did you try it this way no or yes or whatever and so that way we we learn from each other and we don't have to all we keep reinventing the wheel
3: I think that the other thing is also to be in tune with the superorganism. Understand it instead of relying on textbook answers and uh, recipes from chemical companies that are telling you to treat uh, and and expect a silver bullet. I think we need to be, it behooves us to be more in tune with what we're seeing in the hives and understanding the cycles and why the bees are doing what they think they're doing and just dance with them, take their lead and read what's working and what's
2: not. Right. Right. And that's a good point. I tell people a lot. We we've gotten to where we don't listen. Mm -hmm. We only talk. And that leads us into this um, polarized society where we're for or against Trump or whatever. And nobody's listening. (laughs) Uh, Well, religion, any subject. Right. But we don't listen and we need to learn to listen to the bees. Right. And we think, well, they don't speak English. No, but they can tell us what they're doing if we just look and observe and keep an open mind. So often we go in there thinking, oh, it's spring, it's time to make divides. Or I'm the
3: beekeeper, I'm going to decide for you.
2: Yeah, and that we're, we're in dominion over them instead of in partnership with them. And I advocate that we need to cooperate more than be like the CEO in charge of we need to cooperate with them and see what they're up to, and then see if what we are, can do in the hive can enhance what they're up to, rather than f- force them not to do what we don't want them to do. Right.
3: So with this, and because we've been talking for a while, and I don't want anybody to get bored, I just want to leave people with a message of hope that there is a way to do this and plenty of people are doing this across the United States. We've been doing it. You've been doing it for so many years. I'm just kind of, you know, with seven, almost eight years under my belt, I'm a baby compared to you. But I would say if you're willing to give it a try, do not despair and just take the lead from the people that are actually doing it and and, uh, understanding that that amount of people is growing exponentially. That message is getting out there. We are no longer the minority. And with that, can you just kind of give us a few parting words on what your thoughts are on that and and give people some hope that they too can do this?
2: Yeah, thank you. Uh, I feel every day like, wow, there's so much more interest in organics I mean, you go to the local Walmart and there's an organic section. And I thought, well, that seems so antithetical to me, but it just shows that we're waking up. You know, the gut microbiome, we share that with bees, they have a gut microbiome, and that's gonna make us be careful of what we put in our mouths or what we put in our beehives, because we're realizing that the microbes in our gut have a profound influence on our social skills, On our moods, and our health, and our um, well-being, so I I feel like we're about to turn a corner, and a lot of people are coming into the our side of the camp and realizing I want to be reasonably healthy, and I want to. That means I have to start feeding, taking care of bees, and growing a garden, and doing things more organically and holistically. holistically. Yeah. And the, the, I see a, a lot of hope in the future, be, whereas the news is all about global warming and kind of doom and gloom and everything's falling apart. I see a lot of people saying, well, here's what I can do. And, and just go Exactly. Do it. Just, just do it. Go plant flowers and take care of some bees and watch for mites and then hopefully breed for my resistance and help us.
3: And basically, we're raising a certain mindfulness um, amongst the beekeeping community, and we need all of you guys to help us out. Everybody can participate as long as you're willing and open to try it out and follow the advice of the best natural beekeeping practices that are out there and giving yourself the tools. So, Les, thank you so very much. This was a a treat to have you. We'll have you back on the Natural Beekeeping Corner, and uh, we'll talk some more about some of the uh, advice and experience that you have with all this because it's invaluable, and I hope that our listeners uh, really enjoyed this. Uh, This was definitely a treat for me, so thank you for being here today.
2: Thank you for having me, Natalie. I've enjoyed talking to you.
3: And Mm -hmm. I want to remind everybody that if you have questions, uh, we will address your questions. So send them to us. We'll do a listener questions segment section on the the corner. And um, you can send them to us at Be Mindful Honey Farms. And we'll be back next month, the first Monday of each month on the Hive Jive. But in the meantime, if you want to get a little bit more of less and nice um, natural beekeeping uh, advice and want to ask your questions live you can join us on our chat with the mindful beekeepers and or contact us and we also do that uh, in person on fridays 4 to 6 p.m in south austin at the uh, hcba beekeeping store as well so we do like a beekeeping social so we we're trying to get you guys to to get the answers you need and um in the meantime we wish you a great week a great month And uh, y'all be good.
2: Thank you, Les. Thank you, Natalie. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
0: You've been listening to The Hive Jive. We appreciate you joining us on our beekeeping adventures. And you can find out more information about today's episode online at thehivejive.com. And as always, thanks for listening.